Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Thank you guys so much. Well, good morning, everyone. At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss our three to five-year-olds. They can head out to uh, their class. And for the rest of us, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And um, you might be thinking, I feel like we've been in Luke 8 for a while now. And, and it is true. We have been. Uh, Luke has just been a massive chapter. When, when we finish up Luke 8, it, it'll be about two months that we've spent in just this chapter alone. Um, it, it's packed full of Jesus. It's about his ministry. It's about his teaching, his team, his parables. And now the next three sermons that you're going to see in Luke 8, uh, we'll be looking at his power. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Jesus' power over nature. Next week uh, we'll be looking at his power over demons. And then Josh will pick up and preach the power of Jesus over physical disease and death. And so needless to say, not only is Jesus the greatest teacher to ever live, but he also possesses some of the greatest power that we've ever seen But there may be more to this passage than just him exercising power and authority over a storm that we see. That's typically where most people preach the angle of this passage is is just look at Jesus' authority over nature. Um, But I I think there's um, some more for us to be able to see from this. And so it's so good. I want to show you this. So Luke 8, 22 through 25. I'm going to read it for us. It says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they, they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging wa- waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Now that's our passage that we're going to be looking at today. But I also want to show you, I'm going to read the parallel passages from the other Gospels that are in Mark and Matthew, just so that you kind of gain a little bit of some other angles and perspectives that are going on with what Jesus says, as well as with the response that's going on here with the disciples. And so here's the version from Mark. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, uh, or and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Peace." Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then here's Matthew's point of view on it as well. 
And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray your spirit does a work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. I pray your spirit does a work in the faith that you've given us. That it allows us to trust you at your word and in your ability alone. Not in us, not in our eloquent words of wisdom and speech, but in you alone. May you reveal yourself to us this morning in a way that points us away from ourselves and only to you. Not the storms around us, not the vehicle in which is getting us through the storm, but just you and what you're doing in the midst of it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, though Jesus is experiencing here just some incredible power and authority over nature, I, I believe this passage has more to do with, with the faith, with the faith of these disciples. And so when I look at faith, when, when we kind of define faith, there's lots of different ways in which you can kind of define faith and, and work it out. But faith is trusting Jesus at his word. It's trusting Jesus at his ability. It's trusting Jesus in who he says he is. But what does that look like in our story? When Jesus uses a word, what he says in the story is, let us go across to the other side of the lake. All right, that, That's his word. That's, that's his promise. That's his current objective. That's his current destination. That's, that's what Jesus wants to happen in this moment. Now, has Jesus given these disciples any reason to believe that he's not a man of his word? Has he given them any reason to believe he's not going to get them to the other side? Has there been any instances thus far where they would question that he's not a man of his word or that he's not going to follow through on his word? Well, no, he, he, he never lies. But recount the events of this story here. We, we just read that they get in the boat to cross over to the other side. Jesus falls asleep. A storm came, and apparently a rather big one, because again, the disciples were terrified that they were perishing, that they were going to lose their life. And you've got to remember, at least four of them are seasoned fishermen. All right? they've, they've experienced life on the waters, and even them, they're, they're terrified, wondering whether or not this is going to be the storm that takes us down. They then yell at Jesus, waking him up. Jesus wakes up. He tells the storm to stop and then asks them this question, where is your faith? And even though Jesus had ceased the storm, the disciples then say, or it says of them that they were afraid, that they were filled with great fear after it's calmed. They were filled with great fear and yet also marveled. So they're experiencing a bit of a kind of a conundrum here. Maybe they are still on edge about the storm and almost kind of dying by shipwreck. 
But now they're sitting on board with someone who just told the thing that terrified them to stop. Like he, he controlled it. The very thing that was trying to kill them just listened to him. So, so even though I'm thankful for him calming the storm, I, I'm now a bit afraid of what he's capable of doing to me, possibly. Right? Like, not only that, but the thing that terrified me didn't even cause Jesus to flinch. He literally slept through it. But the disciples, afraid of the storm, are now a bit afraid of Jesus and yet are marveling at Him as well. And so the natural question I had is, why is that their response? Why is that their response? Now follow me here for... for, uh, Follow me here for why that would be their natural response. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, or according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that you and I, we are already, we are dead in our sin and are considered by nature children of wrath. So, so apart from Jesus Christ doing any sort of miracle in your life to forgive you of your sins, we as humans are considered dead in our sin, and by nature, children of wrath. So by nature, our identity, we know things aren't right. You, you don't have to go to anybody in this world. I don't care what they profess themselves to be. If you ask them, are, are there things messed up in this world? They're going to say, yeah. Are there bad things in this world? Yes. Like, we know that. We understand that. We experience this. We feel this. We have, a, we have a creator who created us to be good, to be holy, to be righteous. But because of sin, we are not good, unholy, and unrighteous. And therefore, the wrath of God is our punishment. Because of all sin is ultimately against God. It's an act of rebellion. It's cosmic treason. So knowing your existence apart from Christ, as Jonathan Edwards once put it, your existence is in the hands of an angry God. Like He's angry towards our rebellion. He's angry towards our sin. These disciples in the boat are coming to terms with that. They're coming to grips with the fact that maybe this Jesus actually is God, and if so... Then John Piper says, you don't come near him without reverence and awe. So when these disciples see someone who has authority and power over the thing that was trying to kill them, how much more authority and power does he have over them? And that is both a terrifying and comforting reality. And that's what these disciples are experiencing. He killed the thing trying to kill us. Technically speaking, he has the power to kill us too, does he not? After all, we're sinners. We deserve it. What little they know, or they may know about the Scriptures, is that it doesn't usually work out well for those who sin and rebel against God and then come into His presence. They might be recalling Isaiah 13, verse 9, where it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, 
to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. I mean, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound like a God that I want to be in his presence. So it's true to say that that Jesus has the power to kill the thing that was trying to kill them, the storm. It's also true for Jesus to create the storm and wipe them out for they are dead in their sins and are by nature children of wrath. Like, he could have done that in this moment and as well remained Lord, good, holy, and perfect. It would not have been evil for him to do that. It would have been just because by their own deeds, by their own sin, they deserve death. Listen to this. If, if Jesus never woke up, the headlines would have read, Jesus, lone survivor of the Galleonic. Right? That's just my nick- nickname for the boat on the Sea of Galilee. But that's not how our story goes. That's not how the story goes. That may be true for those who never believe in Jesus. And that will be the reality. But for those who have faith in Jesus, the story plays out differently. You see, Ephesians 2, if you just sit in verses 1 through 3, you experience no hope in life. No hope. I am dead in my sins and my trespasses. I am by nature a children of wrath. I am awaiting my Creator to kill me. But if you move on to verses 4 through 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. So as a sinner, when we see the power of Jesus, we're terrified. But as a saint, when we see the power of Jesus, we marvel. And we rejoice and we worship God for He's good and worthy to be praised. You see, God is a judge and me on death row because of my sin, because of my actions, my words, my thoughts. He has sentenced me to death and my punishment is His wrath forever and always. As a holy judge... He can send the storm, He can kill me, he can, and He can remain good, perfect, and holy. But this holy judge is also a loving Father. And Ephesians 2 says that because of the great love with which He loved us, He makes us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. He then adopts us, and He then brings us, who once deserved death, He now brings us to His home where He gives us life And life forever. Essentially, though Jesus can kill them because of their sins, because of His love for them, He gets them safely to the other side. Where salvation waits for them in the midst of this storm. It's terrifying and yet marveling. And I think this is why Jesus asked this question. Where is your faith? Like, have I given you any reason to believe that I'm not going to bring you to the other side of salvation, to the other side of safety? 
Jesus even, even began by giving them his word. He gave them his word. It's easy to miss, but verse 22. Let us go across to the other side of the lake. When one of my sons says to me, Dad, I want a treat. There is not an ounce of doubt in my mind that they want a treat. I know them. They're never going to pass on a treat. These disciples are still getting to know Jesus. They're still feeling Him out. But remember, like back in Luke 7, Jesus healed the centurion's servant without even being in His presence. Like These disciples have seen some things already. Like he, he healed the centurion's servant without even being in the presence. It's almost like he just phoned that one in. Like, hey, Holy Spirit, can you go ahead and just head over to the centurion's house? And the Spirit's like, well, I'm already here, omnipresence. So I'm just going to go ahead and do that for you. And then in the next chapter, Jesus goes into a little town called Nain. And while he's there, he in, it interacts with a widow whose only son has now died, and he just walks in and he says, no longer. Like, her son was dead. Like, dead, dead. Funeral. And he walks up, touches the casket, and the boy comes back to life. Life. Like, alive and well. They've seen some things here. Already. And yet here... They're struggling to trust Him at His word. Struggling to trust, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Like, that's all they needed to hold on to. Like, Jesus isn't questioning them whether or not they believe He can, he can handle the storm. He's questioning why they don't believe His word. When the storms came, why aren't they saying, don't worry everyone, Jesus already said, let's go across to the other side of the lake. This is just a hiccup. It's just a little speed bump in the road. He will get us there. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do? In this situation, He's taking a nap. So why don't we just all take a nap? Don't worry about the waves and the filling of the boat and whatnot. Like Jesus already told us what's going to happen. So take a nap. See if there's some extra room on the cushion, according to Mark. I want to give you the greatest advice of personal application you may ever receive. That's a lot of weight. <laughs> if you're finding yourself right now in a great storm, whatever that may look like, here's my advice to you. Take a nap. Just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. Proverbs 3, 24 through 26, just so that I make it biblical for you. It says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. For when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. To add a little bit more if you don't believe that one. Psalm 4 verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell 
in safety. In safety. If you've read enough of the Bible, you will know that God does not promise that there will be no storms. In fact, He promises that there will be storms. There will be calamities. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. Guaranteed. There are several ways to deal with them. But one of the things Jesus tells us to do is take a nap. Take a nap. Sleep through it. Like, we always talk, like, follow Jesus' example. What was Jesus doing here? He's sleeping. Sleep in peace knowing that Jesus has already, because you believe in him and you trust in him, he's already guaranteed that you're going to get to the other side. It does not mean that the storm will actually calm in our situations. It does not mean that he will actually rebuke it or remove it. He can. We can pray for that. It's okay. It's free to do. But what we do know is that he's with us and will allow us to rest through it. I'll tell you one thing. Ministry would be a lot easier if we all had that kind of faith, though, right? (laughs) It'd be a lot easier if we all just had this posture of, man, things are really difficult right now. Things are falling apart, so I'm just going to go take a nap. But most of us aren't that way. We worry and we grow weary. We're anxious and burdened. We act like we have no idea how things could possibly work out. We're more like the father with the demon-possessed boy who says, I believe you can, but help my unbelief. Listen, I'm not, I'm not hating on us. Last year when we got Kelsey's diagnosis, I... I wasn't standing up with my Jesus cape in the wind saying like, you know what, I'm not even worried. I've seen Jesus heal sickness before. I know he's good on his word. I'm good. So I'm just going to sleep on this one. It was not easy to sleep in those situations. I was a blubbering mess. Y'all saw it. Y'all know I cry all the time. I believe he can, but I need help with my unbelief that he will get us to the other side. So I come back to this question, where's your faith? And I take that personally. Where's your faith? And I think it's such a good question because I don't believe Jesus is asking them, where is your ability? If our faith is in ourselves or our ability, then then we're just going to go down with the ship. But if our faith is in Jesus' word and his ability, then we're going to make it safely to the other side. And here's the reality. The other side might be the ship going down and you going to glory. That's the ultimate other side. Or it might be you going through whatever it is that you're going through and he gets you to the other side here and you continue walking through another chapter of life and you continue moving on and you're matured and sanctified through that process because that's how he uses suffering and trials and storms in our life is it matures you. It makes you more like Jesus. And that's why Paul starts getting so amped up about his sufferings and his trials because he wants to be more like Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he. So then it, in a weird way, he starts shifting towards uh, th- don't get rid of my sufferings and trials, but, but maybe give me some more. If it actually means that I get more of Jesus. 
And so J.C. Ryle once said, the lesson now before us is one of deep practical importance. To have true saving faith is one thing, but to have that faith always ready for use is quite another. Many receive Christ as their Savior and deliberately commit their souls to Him for the time and eternity, who yet often find their faith sadly failing when something unexpected happens and they're suddenly tried. These things ought not to be so. We ought to pray that we may have a stock of faith ready for use at a moment's notice and may never be found unprepared. He says the highest style of Christian is the man who lives like Moses, seeing him who is invisible. I mean, that sounds like an insane person. When I, I'm seeing something that's invisible. That man will never be greatly shaken by any storm. He will see Jesus near him in the darkest hour and blue sky behind the blackest cloud. The greatest thing to take away from the story is actually not just them trying to muster up faith and believe Jesus at His word and the whole nine yards. The greatest thing that was for them is that who's in the boat with them? Jesus. Jesus. So it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing. At the end of the day, and this sounds heretical, it doesn't matter the faith in the moment. Again, I believe, help my unbelief. We're working through the faith. We're working through the trust. We're working through what that looks like in our lives. And thank God that it's not based on the quantity or quality of our faith, but it's based on who's in the boat with us, who's sleeping, because He knows the work is done. It's finished. He's already done everything that we need in order to be saved. And so He's not getting up in the moment and He's not looking at them and saying like, well, how come you didn't go west? How come you didn't go east? How come you didn't try to avoid the storm? How come you're not paddling? Where's your life vest? He's not asking those questions. What He's getting at is, do you not realize that I'm in this boat with you? And if I die in this moment, everyone dies for eternity. Trust who I am and what I'm accomplishing and what I'm doing. We're going to get to the other side because there's work to be done for Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to make you holy and good and reconciled back into a relationship with God. There is nothing that can thwart that. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of Jesus towards us. And that's what he's getting at. Why are we to have this kind of faith in Jesus? Well, it's simply because we trust him at his word and in his ability Jesus in the moment exercises his sovereignty. See, one of the things that he continued to do with his disciples 
He'll rebuke them. Where's your faith? You've already... You've seen me heal some things. You've seen me do some amazing things already. I'm going to continue building your faith. I'm going to continue helping you right now in your unbelief. Right now, you believe you're perishing. Let me show you that you're not. And he rebukes the storm, and he exercises his power over that. So that in the moment, they're able to well up in their faith. They're able to well up in the the overflowing of what Jesus is capable of doing. They're able to trust him at his word a little bit more than what they were when they first got in the boat. Again, they've already seen some things. But again, another sudden terror arrives and they're then questioning it again. They're human, all right? They're you and me. We believe. But I don't know. I don't know. And so he says, well, watch me. Watch what I do to this storm. And immediately it calms. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over your beginning. He's sovereign over your journey. He's sovereign over your destination. Whatever your situation is, whatever that thing is in your life right now that you're progressing toward, trust God at his word that he will get you there. And it may be rocky and rough waters, But if it's where God wants you to go, He's going to get you there. He's going to get you there. Because He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He might get you there because of a storm. He might use a storm to get you there. Or, collateral damage of sin, enemy that's also rampant, running rampant, it also might bring some storms. And Jesus says, not today. And he parts them, or he calms them, and he continues to get us through. Regardless, what do you get to do in the moment? Trust him and take a nap through it. Rest. Rest. The work's been done. As it brings us to our time of communion, I want you to see... This, where this power ultimately comes from. This power. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18 puts it this way. Paul is talking about his, his, um, his ministry of the gospel. And he says, For Christ sent me to preach the gospel. He sent me to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Again, that's... We don't come up here using like seminarian words and, and, and all these like strategies on how to like be as, as best communicators as possible. Like we're not trying to manipulate decisions and whatnot. We preach the gospel. Because if we don't preach the gospel, what we're actually doing is we're trying to empty the cross of its power. That's what he says. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He goes on to say in verse 18, for the word of the cross. So now he's drawing, drawing uh, the light on, on this idea. The word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when we think about this story, 
what they are terrified of is perishing. Perishing. If they don't believe in Jesus, then it's just all folly. Everything. It's just all folly. But believing in Jesus, they actually have the power, because of what he did at the cross, to be saved. To be saved in it. Because what Jesus did at the cross, as I shared in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we are. Like, you're, you're born sinners, okay? Blame Adam and Eve. You can blame Adam and Eve all you want. Blame Adam and Eve, but the way sin is passed down, you're not born good and then like, you know, when you're six, seven years old, you start to mess up or you do something wrong. It doesn't take that long, by the way. You know, I always say, go serve in nursery and you'll see sinners. You're born that way, all right? Out of the gate. And it's because sin is passed down from the seed of man. Everyone's been born from a biological father and mother. Sin has been passed down. So because we are already born dead in our trespasses and by nature children of wrath, God had a plan. He had a plan. His plan could have been to just kill everything. Kill everything. He would remain holy. He would remain good. He would remain just because it's giving us what we deserved. He told Adam and Eve, if you do this, if you rebel against me, if you disobey, death. Not a slap on the wrist, death. And we sinned as a humanity and death entered in. But to kill death, you need an ultimate death. To stop death, you need a perfect death. To justify God's wrath or to satisfy God's wrath, there needs to be a satisfactory death. Which basically means if you and I just die because of our sins, like God's not satisfied. He's not satisfied. So he needs someone who comes in as a perfect substitute for you and me. A perfect substitute. So that the wrath of God can be poured out on this perfect person. Crushing him, killing him. So that by us believing in him, we get his new identity. We get his goodness. Because now all of our sins have been paid for. Paid for. We're clean. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, knew no sin, never sinned, never did anything wrong. Again, that's why, why it's dumb for them not to believe. Never did anything wrong. Is perfect. He who knew no sin became sin. Every bad thought you've ever had, every dumb thing you've ever done, he took it on the cross. He became you. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to say, so that you might become him. So that you might become his righteousness. It's the great exchange. He gets your sin, you get his goodness, you get his righteousness. And that allows you to enter into that relationship with the Father because Jesus is his son. You now get to be adopted sons and daughters of him. The power of the cross is what purchased that. When we come to this every single week, 
That's what we are celebrating. That's what we are celebrating. When Jesus on the cross said, it's done, it's finished. I love what Grant and Carrie prayed. Like, we don't have to earn anything. He did it all for us to enter into a relationship with God now and for eternity. There's nothing else that we have to do. We believe in Him. We trust Him. That's it. We worship Him because of what He did. We worship Him. This is a time of worship. And it is what we put... I mean, we're all in on it. Nothing else. We're all in on this. And that's why we celebrate this every single week. Because we remember Him breaking His body. And we remember Him shedding His blood. So that you don't have to break your body and shed your blood. Instead, what you get to do is you get to go take a nap. You get to go rest. Rest in His salvation for you. Rest in His forgiveness to you. You don't have to earn it. Now, there's going to be work, so rest a bit. Take a nap. I'm going to go take one for about three months. So I want you to go ahead and stand with me. For those in this room who, like, you, you believe in Jesus. You know you're a sinner. You've confessed those sins to God. and You've said, I've sinned against you. And I know your son has gone to the cross and he's paid all of those sins in my place. And your wrath has been satisfied because of that. And I now am, am just three days later as Jesus was risen from the grave. I am now risen from being dead in my trespasses to now being alive in Jesus. If I believe that, then we invite you to partake of this. If you don't believe that, if you're still kind of questioning whether or not this is true and legit, we, we ask you to refrain from this because there's nothing magical about this. All right, this, by partaking of this doesn't get you to heaven. So if you don't believe that, we ask right now that you just refrain from it. But if, you're, if this is kind of stirring up something in you, we ask that you have a conversation, either with someone that came with you or someone that invited you. We ask that you have a conversation about what does it look like to believe in Jesus for salvation, to, to get, get me to the other side safely. To be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. To, to get in that boat of salvation and go with Jesus. Ask someone about that so that hopefully you can believe in Jesus for the remove, removal of your sins and, and spend eternity with him in heaven. But for those who do believe, we ask that you come, partake, or come grab the elements, come back to your seats, and we will worship Christ together.